Gospel according to Mark. Mark chapter 2, found on page 1152 of the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 to 12. Listen, this is God's word. And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic, who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, Take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. Now imagine tomorrow you're making dinner, and you're cutting vegetables, and rather than cutting the carrot, You cut your hand with a knife, and it's a deep wound, and you realize that you're going to need stitches. And so you have to go to the emergency care to get treatment, and you think, this won't take long. And you see other people there in much worse condition than you are, and you think, well, at least my issue is not that serious. I'll be out of here in an hour, and I'll get home to enjoy that dinner. Well, the nurse stitches up your hand, but says that, they'll have to do a blood test to make sure that there's no infection. It's routine. And so you wait for the results of your blood test. But it's not the nurse that comes back in. It's a doctor with a serious face. And he tells you that they find something unusual in your blood work. You are seriously ill. and They are preparing to take you in for surgery. You thought your problem was a cut in your hand when you actually had a much more serious problem that threatens your life. Well, in our passage today, Jesus helped someone see that their immediate problem was not their greatest problem. Their greatest problem is their need for forgiveness. And your greatest problem is your need for forgiveness of your sins. And Christ came to make that possible. And so you must respond by putting your faith in Christ, for in him you will be transformed. So firstly, notice faith in Christ will cause you to do costly things, verses 1 to 4. 
Jesus is back in Capernaum after a preaching tour of Galilee. And he left Capernaum because of the crowds of people who were not interested in his preaching, but only in his miracles. And he returns to Capernaum, as that was his base here in Galilee. And immediately, the crowd turn up. They pack the house that Jesus was in, which many scholars believe to be the home of Simon Peter. Remember, Peter is an eyewitness that gives Mark his material to write his gospel. Well, Peter, the owner of this house, would certainly remember this event. We read that there were even people in the doorway so that Peter could not receive them. Hospitality in those days was extremely important. There was an etiquette in welcoming people into your home, but Peter wasn't able to follow this because of the crowd. As usual, Jesus preached the gospel to the crowd that he is the king, that he is the promised Messiah. Uh, They need to respond by repenting of their sin and putting their faith in him. Verse 3, we read of four men who clearly had put their faith in Christ, for they are carrying with them a paralytic to bring to Jesus. They did believe Jesus to be the king. They recognized his authority over illness, over paralysis. They believed that Jesus could transform this man from his state of paralysis to having function over his body. They come to this crowded house and find it impossible to get in. And you can imagine them asking people, please move to let us in. But there was no way that they were going to fit inside this house. What were they to do? Did they think, it's just too difficult. Let's go back home. We often hear of people, how easily people are put off investigating who Jesus is. They're too busy. They don't like to read. The sermons are too long. It doesn't feel relevant. These are pathetic excuses. Well, these men are not put off. They clearly believe Jesus could help their friend, and they also loved their friends, and so they were determined for him to see Jesus. They didn't know how long Jesus would remain in Capernaum. They were not going to miss him. And so they decided upon doing something more drastic, You can imagine them looking at the house and wondering, is there another way in? And so they decide to tear a hole in the roof of the house. Now, roofs in Palestine are constructed very differently than in our homes today. The roofs were flat. They were made up of timber beams laid parallel to each other, about a couple of feet apart. And then the other direction, there were sticks that were laid and then branches on top of that. And then finally, slabs of baked mud, or in Luke's gospel, he calls them tiles. And these were laid on top to make it waterproof. And it's estimated these roofs were about two feet thick. So these four men start digging through the roof. And you can imagine the crowd below hearing these digging noises of dust starting to fill the room, of dirt falling on them, and then sunlight. There's a hole right above them. And through that hole, this paralyzed man is lowered down. These four men were determined. People must have been shouting at them, telling them to stop. But they were willing to destroy the roof of this house to get Jesus in. They would bear the cost of repairing the roof 
if it meant their friend being healed. That demonstrates their faith, and Jesus notices it. Hughes writes, those who really want something spiritually and go for it are the ones who get it. When the four tore through the roof, they took the kingdom by violent, determined force. And such faith unleashes God's power. That's a challenge for us. Would your faith in Jesus, your love for others, enable you to do something similar? I'm not suggesting that next week you try and make a hole in the roof of this church and try and get through it. But what costs are you willing to incur because you believe that Jesus is the only way? What does that look like in your life? It's so easy to be lackadaisical in our approach to God. It's evident in our prayer life, in our worship, in our tithing, or in our fellowship with others. When you see Jesus as small, as lacking authority, you're not going to do big things for him. Instead, you will compromise. A small Jesus will lead to a weak faith. And so you must see Christ for who he is, the one who is all authority. And so your faith in him increases. How about your love for others? My brother-in-law and sister-in-law work at MD Anderson, Houston, Texas, a hospital that specializes in treating cancer. And they have patients from all over the world because of its reputation in fighting cancer is known worldwide. And these families, out of love, they sacrifice lots of money, lots of time, and lots of energy so their loved ones can get the best possible treatment out there. And so in your love for others, are you willing to bear a cost to bring them to Christ? Or do you speak of Christ only when it's convenient? Often it means going out of your way. It means investing in people. Now, it's not that you're to strap people down on a stretcher and bring them to church, but it does mean hard work at relationships. Rosario Butterfield is a great example of one who received this kind of investment from Pastor Ken Smith. It took time. It took friendship. It was a very unlikely friendship, and so a level of trust had to be built. There had to be a willingness to be open and to be honest. But God worked through that friendship to bring Rosaria, a gay feminist professor, to become a follower of Christ. And this is what you should be doing for your family, for your friends, for your children. Family worship is an important time to encourage your children to learn, to understand the things of God. It can also be uh, immensely frustrating time. And you wonder, is it worth all this effort? It's easy when you're tired or the kids are not cooperating not to do it. But faith in Christ will cause you to do costly things. That's clearly evident by these four men. Well, secondly, consider Jesus came to solve your greatest problem of sin, verses 5 to 11. We read of Jesus' reaction to this event. He saw the faith of these four men. He reaches out in compassion to this man and says, your sins are forgiven. Well, wait a minute. That's not what this man is here for. His friends brought him to Jesus for Jesus to heal him off his paralysis. Why is Jesus forgiving him off his sins? 
Jesus has made a mistake. The man's problem is his paralysis. But Jesus knew what the man's greatest problem was. It's not his paralysis. It's not being able to walk again. It's his need to have his sins forgiven. So Jesus uses this as a teaching moment to the crowd. That what they need is not another miracle. It is to have their sins forgiven. Jesus knows better than we do what we need. Yes, that man probably dreamt of walking again. He probably thought, if only I can use my legs, then I wouldn't have to be dependent on others. I could help my friends instead of them always helping me. What is it that you often think that you need in life? What is it that you constantly worry about? What is it that you daydream about? It could also be a disability or an illness or providing for yourself. For you students, is it your education? Always wanting the top grades, concerned about an assignment or an upcoming presentation or exam. Parents, you're worrying about your children. You're concerned with their attitude or with their decision-making. Young people, maybe you're concerned about having a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You see that as your greatest need in life. Older people, maybe you're concerned about your finances and about the future. And so we could go on and on and on. You could be concerned about which political party will win or achieving your personal best at the gym or having lots of friends. What happens if your greatest need is provided for? Your greatest problem is removed in your eyes. Well, Tim Keller writes, you're looking to that thing to save you from oblivion from disillusionment, from mediocrity. You've made that wish into your savior. You've never used that term, of course, but that's what's happening. And if you never quite get it, you're angry, unhappy, empty. But if you do get it, you ultimately feel more empty, more unhappy. You've distorted your deepest wish by trying to make it into your savior. And now that you finally have it, it turns on you. And so those things you want, you yearn for, those deepest wishes you think will fulfill you, if you get it, they will not satisfy, and you end up wanting something else. I remember watching an interview of Matt Damon talking about winning an Oscar when he was only 27 years old for Goodwill Hunting. And he was asked, what was it like to win an Oscar at such a young age. And he said on the night that he won it, he couldn't sleep because of the excitement. And he looked at that award and said he was thankful he didn't cheat or hurt anyone to get it. And he went on saying, imagine chasing that Oscar and not getting it until you're in your 80s or 90s. And now all of your life is behind you. And you realize what an unbelievable waste. This award can't fill you up. It's having a hole, and this won't fill it. And so he said he felt blessed to have that awareness at that age of 27. Well, your greatest need is not winning an Oscar. It's not any of those things that you so desire. They will only disappoint. Jesus teaches you here that your greatest need is the same as this man. It's not paralysis. It's the need to be forgiven of your sins. 
Your sin is an offense to God. When you sin, you are rejecting his rule in your life. It's rebellion. It's saying to God that he is not the king in your life, that instead you are the king. You're telling God to go away. And so it's offensive. Like any rebellion, it will be punished. And that's why sin is our greatest problem. You and I are in a precarious position because of sin. We need that offense removed. Otherwise, we will face the wrath of God. And so you need forgiveness for your sins. More than success. More than a boyfriend or a girlfriend. More than financial security. You need forgiveness more than even the ability to walk. Sadly, this problem is undermined by those who should be most clear. Many churches rarely speak about the need for forgiveness of sins. They instead gloss over it. They speak only of God's love. But we will see God's love is evident because of forgiveness for sins. Rico Tice, a famous English evangelist, speaks about the need not so much for people to be saved, but for people to realize that they are lost. Few are even aware that they are sinners and that they need forgiveness. Another way that can be undermined, especially as parents, is when we're only concerned about our children's academic achievements or sporting achievements or about them being popular. That's not to deny this for our children, but when you make that the greatest priority, you're teaching your children that that is their greatest need. No, your greatest need, their greatest need, is the forgiveness of sins. Well, thirdly, let's notice your sin is against God. So only God can forgive your sin. Jesus said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven you. You can imagine everyone taking a sharp intake of breath. You can't say that. Notice who is present. The scribes or the teachers of the law are present. Mark includes that they are sitting. That's interesting. It's standing room only in the house, and yet these men are sitting. And that shows the honor and the privilege that they have in that society. They were the pillars of society. People respected them. And it appears they are present, not because they are enthralled by Jesus' teaching. Instead, they are there to investigate who Jesus is. They were closely listening to Jesus, waiting for him to say something that they thought would discredit him. What Jesus just said was blasphemy to them. God is offended by our sin. Well, how can Jesus say, I forgive you? Only God can forgive sins. Can you imagine being hurt by someone? They speak against you. They undermine you. They say something that's not true about you. And then someone else says to them, it's okay, I forgive you for those terrible things you said. Well, you would be angry. You'd be thinking, you can't do that. I'm the one who's been offended. Mind your own business. That's between me and him. And that's why these teachers of the law are shocked by Jesus. That's why they say Jesus is blaspheming. Blasphemy is ascribing what belongs to God to someone else. And by Jesus saying he forgives this man of his sins, which only God can do, Jesus is saying that he is God, which indeed he was saying, but the religious leaders would never accept a man as God. 
As Ferguson says, these religious leaders were saying, God cannot come to us like this and do these things so humbly and graciously. Therefore, this man cannot be the Son of God. But God did come into the world like this to relate to you and to me. Jesus Christ is God, and he has the authority to forgive sins. The teachers of the law, they rejected this authority. And this passage, it begins a new section in the book of Mark's gospel of Jesus' conflict with religious leaders, about his keeping of the Sabbath, about him eating with sinners and tax collectors, and about him forgiving sins. And it concludes in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. They rejected Christ being God. And that continues to be an issue today. Many are happy to accept Jesus as a teacher, as even a miracle worker, as a religious leader, no different than Buddha or Muhammad, but not as God. And yet by offering forgiveness of sins, He is saying that about himself. C.S. Lewis put it well when he said, if you've gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you've gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you've gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would first have rent his clothes and then cut your head off. If you had asked Confucius, are you heaven? I think he would have probably replied, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. In my opinion, the only person who can say that sort of thing is either God or a complete lunatic. Well, Jesus is saying he is God. Jesus knows the thoughts of these scribes. Again, pointing to him being God. He asks, why are you thinking that this is blasphemy? And so Jesus is now going to demonstrate that he has the authority to forgive sins. He asks them the question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or arise, take up your mat and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. There's no way to verify that. There's nothing outward to demonstrate forgiveness of sins. Forgiven people don't have a glow about them. No, you can't tell. But to cause a paralyzed man to walk, well, that is harder because it becomes obvious to everyone whether you have the authority or not. Notice Jesus says that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Well, Son of Man is Jesus' title for himself. It points to him having all authority of God on earth. And it comes from Daniel 7, where it it says, And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. God the Father, the Ancient of Days, has given the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, authority on this earth. And Jesus wants these religious leaders to know it. And so Jesus proves that he has authority to forgive sins. He heals the man of his paralysis. And he, this man immediately arose. 
Notice this word immediately, this word that Mark loves to use. This healing was instantaneous. It was dramatic. Everyone watching on recognized that this was out of the ordinary. We read of the people being amazed and glorifying God. They had never seen anything like this. This crowd of people were privileged to see this miracle. But did they remember what Jesus said? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk. Jesus caused this man to walk, to point them to his authority to forgive sins. Forgiveness of sins must have not been deemed relevant, for Jesus would later condemn the city of Capernaum in their rejection of him. And you too will be condemned unless you recognize that Jesus is God, that your sin is against him. But in Christ, you know forgiveness of sins. Well, fourthly, for Christ to forgive your sin, he would take the cost of sin on himself. Now, this passage may make you think that forgiveness of sins is an easy easy thing to do. But for Jesus to forgive this man of his sin, it would mean to take the cost of the sin on himself. Jesus is putting himself on the road to the cross when he tells this man your sins are forgiven. He would bear the cost of sin, which is death itself. Keller writes, the shadow of the cross falls across Jesus' path. Jesus knows what the religious leaders are thinking. And so he knows that if he begins to let on that he's not just a miracle worker, but also the savior of the world, they are eventually going to kill him. If he not only heals his man, but forgives his sins as well, he's taking a decisive, irreversible step down the path to his death. By taking that step, he's putting a down payment on our forgiveness. For Jesus to forgive your sin, he simply can't overlook your sin. He can't say it doesn't matter because your sin does matter. It matters a great deal before a holy God. Sin deserves to be punished. That is just. And so Jesus takes that justice on himself when he died on the cross. You only know forgiveness of sins because Christ took the punishment that you deserve for your sin. Well, how are you to respond to Christ's work of paying the price for your sins? Well, this passage teaches us the correct response. Too often we want to minimize our sinfulness We want to blame others. The right response is to have faith in Christ, just like these four men in the passage. Faith is something that's often confused. It's seen as a mystical power from within. It's for the super spiritual. No, these four men help us to understand what faith is. Faith is coming to Jesus with your need. Well, each one of you needs to be forgiven of your sins. And so you need to come to Jesus with this need. And Jesus responds to this faith by telling you that your sins are forgiven. This man has his sins forgiven. And he's also able to walk. And this miracle demonstrates the transformation that Jesus came to bring. We have noticed in preceding passages, Jesus' resurrection touches. And we're not told whether he touched the man or not. 
But we have a clear testimony that this man was told to arise, to be resurrected, and he does rise up. His life has been transformed by Christ that day, simply by a word. And this resurrection points to the work of Christ in your lives. He saves you from your sins, and he will rise you up on the last day, so you will be with Christ to all eternity. This man gets a preview of the work of God in the here and now. But each one of us will experience this body and soul redemption. All those other needs that you say you have, whether it's illness, whether it's need of friendship, whether it's success, whether it's need for certainty, you will have that with Christ for all eternity. Your greatest problem is your need for forgiveness of sins. And Christ came to make that possible. And so you must respond by putting your faith in Christ. In him you will be transformed. In a little while we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And at the communion table we are to be reminded of the work of Christ. His body was broken. His blood was shed for your greatest need. So you can have your sins forgiven. Forgiveness of sins is possible because Christ bore them for you on the cross. And so as you contemplate and consider his work of salvation, let it increase your faith in him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this reminder of that our greatest need is your forgiveness. Nothing else compares, and so we thank you that forgiveness is available through Christ. And yet we acknowledge that for Christ to forgive us, he had to redeem us with his blood shed on the cross. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And help us, Lord, to respond with faith in him, that in and through him we have salvation. Increase our faith in Christ, we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, let's turn in our psalm books, our next psalm of praise, which is Psalm 103a. Psalm 103a, here the psalmist is in praise to God for God's mercy. He knows God's pardon. He knows God's forgiveness. And the end result is stanza five. Here we read a resurrection. With good things, your desires, he fully satisfies. And therefore, like an eagle... You, with youth renewed, arise. Here we read of resurrection. Knowing Christ's forgiveness, we will arise. And we will be with him forever. Let's stand and sing Psalm 103a.